What's on your Christmas music playlist? Another way to ask it, what are your favorite Christmas songs? When you're listening uh, in the car on the radio, 105.7, 102.1, I don't know if there are any others. Uh, what songs uh, come on and give you a little pep in your step? I gotta admit, last night, driving in the car, um, Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays by NSYNC came on. And I don't, I, I've, this is a guilty pleasure, like, it got me moving. For annoying as it is, I like Last Christmas by Wham. <laughs> um, and really, though, this is the, the top of it all. If, if you can't at least tap your foot to All I Want for Christmas is You by Mariah Carey, I don't know, your heart might be three, th- three sizes too small. <laughs> well, not just fun and catchy music. At Christmas time, this time of year, also has uh, nostalgic and sentimental music. I mean, there are songs literally about nostalgia. You know, I'll be home for Christmas. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. There are songs that are sentimental, even songs about Jesus during Christmas time. You think of songs like uh, Away in the Manger, lines like uh, the little Lord Jesus, asleep on the hay, no crying he makes, taking some poetic license with like the three verses that talk about that. Well, music is one way to represent all that's fun, catchy, nostalgic, and sentimental about this time of year, Christmas time. And with all that out there, it's there. How should, how should Christians respond to it? Well, we should burn with righteous indignation, right? Virtue, signal all those virtues that we have. Boycott the so-called Christmas music. Tear down the gluttonous Santa Claus. Forget about those pagan Christmas trees. No more happy holidays. It's Merry Christmas to you, bub. You better keep Christ in Christmas. Well, it's not that we shouldn't be unconcerned or unaware about distractions from the Christmas message or even uh, distortions of the Christmas message. We should be concerned and aware, always of things that rob God of his glory. But that angry, in-your-face, Grinch-like attitude, that appears to be more concerned about being right than with God's glory. What's more is, I don't know if that attitude displays that Jesus is someone worth having joy over. I mean, we, everybody knows like the, how the picture of someone yelling at you to be happy just doesn't line up doesn't make sense and that's sort of the same what's going on here I think there is a more excellent way that we can respond we don't have to derail all the fun and catchy and nostalgic and sentimental things we can just simply show that there's something better there's someone who is cause for more rejoicing than all of that as good as that might be When we take a serious look at the Bible's presentation of who Jesus is, that's cause for greater adoration and celebration than anything else, especially the sentimental version of Jesus who never graduates from the manger. So we're going to read of one place where that presentation of Jesus is detailed, where it's anticipated even, and that's in Psalm 110. If you're looking at a Bible that looks like this, It's red, it's in the pew rack right in front of you. You'll find it on page 509, 509, Psalm 110. 
Psalm 110, a psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. This is the word of the Lord. Well, the main point of Psalm 110, as we read it, concerns the identity and the actions of this figure that David talks about. And it's clear that David isn't talking about himself. He's not calling himself his Lord. I'll talk about that in a second. He's talking about the Messiah, meaning God's anointed. We saw this figure earlier in the series in the Psalms, in Psalm 2. You know, Psalm 110, though, is unique in that the whole thing is devoted to talking about who the Messiah is and what the Messiah will do. Not just mentioned in one verse. The whole thing is about it. So seeing what there is to see about the Messiah here and seeing how this psalm fits into the entire Bible, I think the main point, the main takeaway from Psalm 110 is this. It's simple. Jesus is unique in his identity and in his work. Jesus is unique in his identity and in his work. Well, we'll see those things, his uniqueness in his identity and his role and unpack that section by section as we walk through this psalm. There are lots of different ways to do that. Um, we'll do that by highlighting three different roles the Messiah has as shown by this psalm. So you'll see in your handout, the bulletin, verses 1 to 3, his role as king. Verse 4, his role as priest. Verses 5 to 7, his role as conqueror. Well, anytime the Bible reveals the identity of the Messiah, what follows quickly is how we should respond. It's unlike the news you see on TV. Like the news, you, you watch it, and you turn it off, and you go about your day. This news calls for a response. That's part of the news. So we'll consider that as well. How we respond to who the Messiah is and what he does and what he, what he has done. So with Psalm 110, just some housekeeping before we jump in to the king, the first section. Psalm 110 so clearly discusses the Messiah. I think it's a chance to go to Sunday school again, a little bit, real quick, before we jump in, uh, to remind ourselves how the whole Bible fits together. So if you're new to the Bible, haven't uh, opened one up in a long time, uh, even if it's just a way of reminder, well, you're going to hear it anyway. It's important for us to know all this here, Psalm 110, that's written about the Messiah, is written before the Messiah came, like hundreds of years before he arrived. That's called prophecy. Now, you may have heard that word before and think of it as predicting the future. Well, it's more than just Nostradamus. Prophecy is actually full of promises. And the main promise that God makes in the Bible is that he will rescue his people from their sin, and reestablish his kingdom. 
He speaks of that at the very beginning, in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve, the first people, sin. He speaks to them in the Garden of Eden, and God says that he will do that, rescue his people from sin, and reestablish his kingdom. He will do that through one of their descendants. So we keep on reading. The Bible's a long book, and history unfolds. And all their descendants, time and time again, fail to do that. They fail to rescue God's people from their sin. They fail to reestablish God's kingdom. But yet again, throughout that history, the promise remains. The promise of one figure who won't fail. This is the figure of uh, Deuteronomy 18, the prophet greater than Moses. It's the figure of 2 Samuel 7, a king on whose throne, uh, whose throne God will establish forever. It's the figure of Isaiah 53, a servant who will suffer and die for the sins of his people. It's the figure here in Psalm 110, a king who will be king and priest. So here, Psalm 110's promises about the Messiah remind us, just as a housekeeping kind of thing, that the Bible is one single story or narrative. It's not a collection of disjointed narratives. It's one single overflowing story from beginning to end. And who's at the center? Jesus. Jesus culminates what the Bible promises. He is the fulfillment of that promised figure who would save God's people and reestablish God's kingdom. Psalm 110 is a great reminder of that. Because we get to see how the whole story fits together because the New Testament authors tell us how Psalm 110 points to and is fulfilled by Jesus. New Testament authors tell us that over and over and over again. So what that means, in other words, we get an inspired commentary on this chapter in the Bible itself. What a gift that is. The Bible interprets itself. So just some reminders as we jump in. The Bible's one single story, and the Bible interprets itself. Those are ways to read the Bible well. Uh, so let's jump in. All right, first part of who this figure is, the king, verses 1 to 3. There we see the decree of the Messiah's rule. And really what it is is his coronation as king. Who does that coronation come from? The Lord, all caps, Yahweh, I am who I am. It is a thus saith the Lord situation. So verse 1 is crucial to figuring out the identity of who this figure is, who this Messiah is. And really, that's why the New Testament picks up on it so many times, because it shows the Messiah's greatness. So what's happening in verse 1 of Psalm 10 is David gets to listen in on a conversation within the Godhead, within the Trinity so here we see David recognizes that there is a distinction between divine persons. God is one, yet God is three. The Trinity, even here, that's something that David recognizes. So he hears this conversation, and he relays to us what he hears in that conversation. And so then from verses 1 to 3, we get a profile of who this king is. And the first thing we see, and what does David call this figure? That's the first part of the profile. What does David call this figure? The Lord said to who? My Lord. You're allowed to, you're allowed to talk sometimes. It's okay. 
<laughs> the Lord said to my Lord. That's interesting. Because David himself is a king. He's God's chosen king already. And so here, this king is paying homage to another king. As we read in Matthew 22 at the beginning of the service, Jesus knew the significance of David doing this. So at Matthew 22, Jesus deals with a series of challenges from his adversaries. And at the very end, he's answered all of them. He turns the tables a little bit. He's like, well, whose son is uh, the Messiah, the Christ? Greek word for the Messiah. They're like, they, they know their Bibles well. They said the Messiah's son is uh, David. Or they knew their Bibles well. They, they, they knew that the Messiah would be a royal descendant of David. He says, okay, we have that established. Let's go to Psalm 110, verse 1. That shows that the Messiah will not just be a special descendant of David. David calls the Messiah his Lord. Well, his adversaries, knowing the importance of this psalm, realized that their view of the Messiah was far too small. This is David's Lord. If this is David's Lord, he must be a king unlike any other. If David pays homage to this king, if, I mean, David, the, the king of Israel, that means everybody should pay homage to this king. Well, we get a, a clearer picture of the profile of this king. We read the rest of verse 1. We see not just that this figure is David's Lord, but we see what God himself declares about this figure. He says this, look there at verse 1. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Further, we see the greatness of the Messiah. Just in that first word, or in the whole phrase, sit at my right hand. I don't know, at your house, maybe you have, like me, the good chair in your family room. The chair that is reserved for one person and one person only. It is like lava if anyone else sits in it. That seat at your house is the place of honor. So here, sit at my right hand. Back then at a banquet, whoever sat at the right hand of the host, that would be the seat of honor. But this isn't just dealing with a banquet here. This is actually dealing with a throne room. So here, this is a person sitting at the right hand of a king. To do that is to share in his rule. And that's what is reserved for Jesus. So Paul says in Philippians 2, verse 9, God has highly exalted him and given him the name above every name. So God's right hand is the place of honor. And that's not where David belongs. The book of Hebrews says even, that's not even where the angels belong. So this figure must be greater than David. This figure must be greater than angels. But we see greatness not just in where he is. We see greatness in what the Messiah is doing where he is. Go back to that good chair for a second. You had a long day, 12-hour day, maybe 15-hour day, sweat, uh, deodorants wearing off, uh, feet are tired, and you walk in your door, you, you see that good chair. It's calling out to you. What do you do? You go and sit. You sit. Why? Because you're done. 
Your work is done. So here, this figures at the right hand, the place of honor, and he is seated. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 10, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. More on this in a second, but Jesus being seated, even that shows his greatness. Even that shows his work to secure full and final forgiveness of sins. That work is done. He sat down. And what's Jesus doing while he's seated? I think we can push this even further. See all the Messiah's greatness here. What's he doing? Those who know your Bibles well, we've sang this a couple times. He's interceding. Romans 8, 34 says, Christ died and was raised and is now seated and interceding for us. Pleading our case. Pleading for the ones he shed his blood for. I love uh, Charles Wesley hymns. We sang a couple. We're going to sing a couple tomorrow. One of my favorites is Arise, My Soul Arise. He talks about intercession. A verse goes like this. The father hears him pray. His dear anointed one. He cannot turn away the presence of his son. The spirit answers to the blood and tells me I have peace with God. While seated, Jesus intercedes, pleads for us. And he's doing one other thing. We can catch it in verse one at the end. Until I make your enemies your footstool. So he intercedes, he pleads, but he's waiting. He's waiting. The father is making all his enemies his footstool. So again, we see the union of the Father and the Son working in tandem. So we know from the whole story that Jesus has already neutralized his enemies, but he's waiting for the final sentencing and hearing. So we, here we have the profile of the Messiah. And we can say so much more. But for now, friends, seeing this, we simply say, Behold your King. Behold your king, David's Lord, God's anointed, exalted by the Father, sharing his rule, taking his seat, having finished the work for forgiveness, living evermore to intercede for you, ready and eager to fully usher in his reign. Behold your king. And we ask this of ourselves. Does our profile of the king match the one that's described here? Is our profile of the king match the one that's described here? Is this who you know Jesus to be? I think this time of year can confuse us with that. So Jesus isn't sweet and cuddly. He's the king. Even when we get a glimpse of this, of who he really is, what will happen? We kneel, we bow down. When we just get a glimpse, we do what David did here, call him our Lord. And what David does here, that's not a unique or isolated incident. Think of even the Christmas story. Think of the wise men. Probably more than we three kings. Uh, lots of other myths going around with them. But the wise men, they didn't come to Jesus to see a sweet and cuddly baby. They came 
to worship a king, to worship the king. And examples abound of what happens when we see, when we behold the king for who he really is. Think about John the Baptist. You can think about Peter. Think about Thomas, my Lord and my God. You can think about the apostle John on the Isle of Patmos, falling, falling at his feet as though he were dead. Think about the Roman centurion seeing him on the cross, saying, truly, this is the Son of God. Is, our, is that reaction in us? Are we beholding the king for who he is? When that happens, friends, we'll be like those described in verses 2 and 3. This great and vigorous host of people who will accompany the Messiah when his rule is fully ushered in. We will be those who offer ourselves freely, even while we are in the midst of our enemies, even while we are in the world. Friends, God has been so kind to us and not only did our king sacrifice himself for us, but God has won our hearts. God has won our willful obedience. God has changed us from the inside out. Jesus also purchased that. That is a part of the new covenant. Praise God. So at the end of the matter, beholding our king, remind ourselves that having an accurate view of who Jesus is matters. Accuracy matters. Because it's only when we see Jesus, for who he actually is, that we will bow our knee to him in this way. Only when we see him for who he actually is. Why should anyone bow for a sweet and sentimental and cuddly baby? They bow for a mighty and glorious and splendor king. All right, last note. This is the longest one, I promise. For, be, for Jesus being the king, it's kind of a buzzer beater point. This is who Jesus is. This is who Jesus is. Acts 5, verses 30 to 31 says, Yes, that while men have rejected him, God has exalted him. Same thing that's said here in Psalm 110. God has exalted him. So friends, since God has done this, that means we don't get to decide if Jesus is Lord. We don't decide that. No more than I decide that this uh, pulpit is brown. It is brown. I don't get to decide if it's brown. I hear a lot, of, a lot of talk this time of year, what Christmas means to me. That's fine, but it's usually after, it usually skips what Christmas actually is. We can't skip who Jesus actually is before we say what Jesus means to me. This is who Jesus is. You don't get to decide he's just a nice guy, a good teacher, another wise religious leader. You don't get to decide if he's Lord. He already is Lord. It's for you to decide whether or not to bow your knee. That's the decision. That's the decision. Along the lines of Psalm 2, it says, Kiss the Son, take the hand that was pierced by nails for your sin, and confess that Jesus is Lord. Romans 10.9, you may know it well, says if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. What a free gift. Friend, each one of us here who has done that, who has bowed our knee to Jesus, will assure you that this is a good king. He's not just a great king. He is a kind, tender-hearted, and merciful king. 
In him, he has the words of life. But friend, even if you don't do that, even if you don't decide to bow your knee, that doesn't mean he's not the king. He still is the king. And one day you will see it, but then it will be too late. So perhaps an appropriate prayer for each one of us at Christmas time would be for God to show us Christ for who he really is. For God to show us Christ for who he really is. For us to live like it. All right, second decree that comes from God comes in verse four. Look at verse four with me. You see it's, it's more than a decree. It's actually an oath. As if there was a reason to doubt an oath from almighty God, God backs it up and says, I won't change my mind about this. It's like, okay, we're gearing up here. This must be something good, something important. And then we see, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. I don't know, maybe a first blush for you, like it's just kind of the air out of the balloon for that. It's like, I'm expecting something. All that buildup for that. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Well, if God says it's that important, we shouldn't neglect it. So again, this is showing the unique identity of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But it is, seems like an obscure statement. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So two questions. Just try to help us get this a little bit. What is a priest and what makes Jesus the best priest? What is a priest and what makes Jesus the best priest? What is a priest? All right, you can imagine all the potential Jeopardy answers to that. Uh, this figure is frequently depicted in bad jokes as one who walks into a bar. Or this figure wears a white collar and administers sacraments. You buzz in, uh, what is a priest? Well, that might be the first images in our mind uh, when we think about a priest. Uh, a term used today, it's, it's meant to be the Latin for presbyteros uh, or elder from the Bible, uh, kind of morphed into something else. Uh, but what about the Bible's presentation of priests? Priests, basic definition, if you're taking notes, priests were those who offered up sacrifices on behalf of God's people. Priests were those who offered up sacrifices on behalf of God's people. Good verse for that definition? In the book of Hebrews all day today. Hebrews 5, verse 1. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. To act on behalf of men. So this work that priests do is necessary. It's necessary for a holy God to be at peace with people who sin against him. It's necessary that there's some kind of go-between between God and people, some kind of mediator. The Bible calls these priests. Now, what makes Jesus the best priest? What makes Jesus the best priest? Two major reasons. Okay, I know we got subpoints within subpoints here. All right, what makes Jesus the best priest? I'll keep it short. One word answers. First answer, his identity. Identity makes him the best priest. His identity is related to him being called Melchizedek. No, this isn't like Melchizedek that lives across the street from you. I'm kidding. I've never met anybody named Melchizedek, so if you have, it's okay. 
And Melchizedek himself is an obscure figure in the Bible, kind of a mysterious figure at that. He appears in Genesis 14 uh, in the story of Abraham. So Abraham just got done rescuing his nephew Lot, uh, getting him out of a huge mess. Abraham meets uh, Melchizedek. Melchizedek said to be a priest of the Most High God. Melchizedek then blesses Abraham. Abraham gives a tithe of spoils of his recent battle to Melchizedek. And that's pretty much the end of the story. Melchizedek, what makes him unique, what makes his identity unique, is that he's said to be a priest, and his name means king of righteousness. King of righteousness. And actually, as a side note, he is king of Salem, early name for Jerusalem, where Mount Zion is in verse 2 of Psalm 110. So as the thing that makes him unique is that he is both priest and a king. Now, what, what's, what's the big deal about that? Well, in Israel's history, you would keep these things separate. So it's common wisdom, checks and balances. You don't want all power absorbed into one person. So priests, you don't do king things. Kings, you don't do priest things. One time, King Uzziah did priest things. And God says, no, you can't do that. And he judged King Uzziah. But here, this individual is both king and priest, like Melchizedek. So, here's an individual who's able to be trusted with this level of absolute power. Priest and king. An individual who can't be corrupted by power. He is trustworthy to be both priest and king. All right, so Jesus, what makes Jesus the best priest? His identity. Second one word answer. His sacrifice. His sacrifice. The second reason is his sacrifice. Remember that priests are those who offer sacrifices to God on behalf of others. That system itself, you think about that. Priests making sacrifices. The system is built, uh, there's a built-in expectation and longing in that system. They have to keep on doing this. Priests have to keep on making sacrifices. And that shows that these sacrifices must be inadequate. They must be inadequate to fully and finally deal with sin. But it begs for something more, too. They sacrifice animals and beasts. And sure, that's a picture of an innocent's blood for a guilty's blood. But an animal can't truly stand in the place of a person. There's built-in expectation and longing. And you think of the priests themselves. The priests themselves are sinful. They have to offer up sacrifices for themselves before they offer up sacrifices for other people. So this old system has built in it a longing and begging for something better and something permanent and something lasting. So what the old system longs for and begs for, Jesus fulfills. Jesus is the best and only high priest because he offered the sacrifice of himself. And there is no greater sacrifice than that. This is God in the flesh. He, unlike priests before him, is sinless. His sacrifice is the only true perfect one 
And you know how we know that? He made it once, and the Father verified it by raising him from the dead. And now he's seated. So, friends, so make sure you're listening. What makes Jesus the best priest? Two reasons. One, you could, say, you could talk. It's okay. His identity and his sacrifice. If you missed it, now you have it. <laughs> All right, so. Boots on the ground, what's this supposed to do for us? Jesus is the best priest. He's the priest king. He's supposed to just uh, stuff our head with knowledge. Well, those who love and are captivated by Christ are fine with continuing to learn about him. In fact, friends, you know that you love God when you want to know him more. And so this isn't just things to memorize. is isn't just things to stuff in our minds. We do this hard work so that we will be stirred to worship the Lord even more. Knowledge is never an end of itself. If it is, we're learning wrong. But it goes beyond that. The impact of this goes beyond it. Jesus being the high priest has further significance than that. You see, Jesus isn't just the best priest Jesus is the only qualified high priest. 1 Timothy 1.5 says that there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. There's nobody else who has made the kind of sacrifice that Jesus has made because nobody else even can make the kind of sacrifice that Jesus has made. Not Muhammad, not Buddha, not Joseph Smith, not Krishna. So trust Jesus for what Jesus alone can do and has done. And namely, that is pay for your sins by shedding his own blood so that we may be forgiven and have eternal joy with him. So friends, appreciating Jesus alone as our priest king means we trust him more fully. Seeing that he alone is qualified, oh, what worth, how trustworthy is he then? How praiseworthy is he then? How much more worthy is he than we give him about commending him to others if he alone is worthy of that, of being the high priest? But there's also comfort. What impact this makes on us? I just want to dwell on this for a second. Comfort in having this priest who offered himself once to put away our sin. See in verse 4, one word that's my favorite after the word Melchizedek. Uh, is forever, forever, forever. For us who have bowed our knee to King Jesus, place all of our trust in him for the forgiveness of our sin, a good standing before the Father. We don't need to worry about a term limit. We don't need to worry about an expiration date. Our high priest stands forever. So that means our perseverance, our eternal security, are not because we are established forever, but because he is established forever. We stand forever because Christ stands forever, and we are connected to him, united with him by faith. So take heart, Christian. The priest king, your priest king, is not going anywhere. He stands forever. All right, last part of the profile. We're going to close it out. There is none like Jesus, even in how he is anticipated here in Psalm 110. To fill out that picture, the closing section, 
pictures Jesus as the conqueror, as the conqueror. Verses 5 to 7. So we said at the very beginning, the scene is a bit like a coronation. Now in verses 5 to 7, the scene turns to the conquest. Follows naturally after the king's rule begins. Now, excuse me, we're not going to unpack every detail of this conquest, but we can notice a few things about it. You just glance over verses 5 to 7. And if there's maybe one word to describe all of it, to describe this conquest, it's exhaustive. Exhaustive. Extends to all people, all places. There's no tyrant that can stand against it. There's no weapon that can stand against it. No ballistic missile that can stand against it. Similar to what we saw in Psalm 2. The nations are the son's heritage. The ends of the earth are his possession. This is exhaustive. But we see also that the Messiah's priestly work comes in verse 4. And here we see in verses 5 to 7 his conquering work. The New Testament clarifies for this for us. This is, represents Christ's first coming and his return. What he has done in his first coming and what he will do in his return. It reminds us, friends, that Jesus is both the lion and the lamb. That Jesus, it reminds us that viewing Jesus accurately as king and priest also means recognizing him as judge and conqueror. Jesus himself said, John 5, 22, the Father has given him all authority to judge. So, what should we think of this conquering work to close out? How should we feel in light of Jesus' imminent conquering work? I think there are several things to take away with this. We'll close. It may be that we find the language that closes uh, Psalm 110, verses 5 to 7, kind of shocking and offensive maybe if that's the case which would be understandable friend if that's the case William Plummer commentator on the psalm would point us and remind us of a conduct of a shepherd Jesus calls himself this he says as a shepherd is gentle toward his flock but fierce and formidable toward wolves and thieves in like manner Christ is kind and gentle toward those who commit themselves to his care, while they who willfully and obstinately reject his yoke shall feel with what awful and terrible power he is armed. Shepherd is also a warrior. Shepherd has to protect. And so we would long for Christ's conquering work when we feel the threats of wolves and and thieves, when we feel the evils of this world, the injustices of the world, and they're not hard to find, we take hope in that Christ, our conqueror, is coming back to make all the wrongs right. There's no other answer to the problem of evil besides Jesus ending it all. That's the hope we have. What would we take away from this conquering work? I think another thing to consider is how this work began. How the work began in the first place. Ralph Waldo Emerson wrote of uh, the shot heard around the world. Uh, that was to uh, refer to the first official engagement 
between Britain and uh, the colonial states uh, at the Battle of Lexington and Concord. What's the first shot of this conquering work? The first shot. The first shot came against the Messiah himself. The first shot of this conquering work was his death. Hebrews 2 verse 4 says, Through death, Jesus defeated the one who has the power of death. That's the wisdom and power of the cross. That Jesus' death brings victory. That's how this conquering work begins. Last thing, this conquering work, who the Messiah is, what he does, what he will do. Something else to consider. There is a gap between the coronation, when Jesus is declared king, and the consummation of it, that conquering work swept throughout the world, which will be swift and easy. As verse 7 says, he will, know, he will not bow his head to give up his spirit. His head will be lifted up in triumph. There's a gap between those things. And what should that tell us? Friends, that should tell us that God is patient. It should tell us that God is patient. That if you have not trusted in Jesus yet, bow your knee to this king. The Bible tells you not to mistake God's patience with him being slow to bring about this promise. There is a gap so that you might find life in Christ now while there's still time. For Christians, in this gap of already, we're saved but not yet, is the kingdom fully here? We long for Jesus' return. We pray for it. But we enlist right now in the work of being his ambassadors. And ambassadors represent their king by knowing their king. Get to know him here. Ambassadors represent their king by being devoted to their king. And we do that as we live in the midst of the world, in, amidst his enemies. And we persuade and we pray that others would also find refuge and eternal life in the one only priest king. Friends, let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we praise you for the work that only you can do and only you have done. God, our view of you is, is too small. Every day, it's too small. Would you give us a bigger view? Would you help us to see you as you really are, a little by little? And as we do, God, would you transform us to be more like Jesus in how we live? Lord, do this for your glory's sake, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.